Well, good morning. Thank you so much for downloading the Faith Life Podcast of Discovery Fellowship Church. This is Pastor Nathan here, and this podcast today is our sermon podcast. So every week we go through after the sermon and post it here on our podcast feed so that in case you missed it, you can get all caught up. In addition, if you check the description for this podcast, you will see some discussion questions that you can use to take what you've learned from the sermon and put it into practice into your life. So don't forget to check that out. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email podcast at dfchurch.com. And if you'd like to support the ministry of Discovery Fellowship Church, please visit dfchurch.com for more information. Now here's the sermon. I'd like to start out, if I could, this morning by sharing with you um, some things that I know and then sharing with you some things that I'm hoping and that I'm praying for. Um, What I know is this. Jesus loves me. And he loves you. Uh, And this I know. For the Bible tells us so. Right? But I also know this. Jesus loves lost people. Lost people matter to him. Lost people are in fact the reason that he became a man. Lost people are the reason he lived on this earth. Lost people are why he died. And why he rose again. Lost people matter to God. And I know this, anyone who follows Jesus more closely and who is tuned to his heart inevitably finds that lost people over time matter not less but more to them as well. So that's what I know. And here's what I'm hoping and praying for, for me and for each one of us that lost people will matter much more to us going forward than they do today. That we will make more time in our lives for lost people. That we will pray more seriously for them. That we'll learn to love them and be comfortable around them, though that may at times be a challenge that will move from hoping they happen to find us to being in the habit of going out and searching for them with intentionality. Now, in that spirit, let me invite you to find Mark's gospel this morning and right at chapter number one. This is a passage of scripture that we uh, find, I think, a, a pretty familiar story in. You can see the text. It says, now, after John, this is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. Now, as I'm sure you know, Mark's gospel account is the shortest 
of the four that's found in the pages of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so because it is the shortest of the four, Mark doesn't include some of the detail that the other gospel writers put in. They all sync up, but Mark's is a little sparser in his narrative. And so, if you were to juxtapose and compare the gospel accounts, what we learn from the other gospels is that this is not, in fact, the first time that Jesus met Peter and Andrew and James and John. It sort of looks like it if you just read Mark, but that's not the case. The other gospel writers sort of fill in the blanks for us. In fact, John's gospel tells us that at the first, these four disciples kind of came looking for Jesus. And that was at the encouragement, in fact, of John the Baptist. And so initially, they just kind of hung around with Jesus, listening to him teach, watching several of his initial signs and wonders, asking him questions. Then after their initial investigations, these guys returned to their regular day jobs of commercial fishing. But now, here in Mark's account, Jesus comes looking for them. And when they see him walking along the Sea of Galilee's shoreline, it's actually more of a large lake than a sea. That's why it's also called the Lake of Gennesaret. These four men already know who he is. And when he challenges them, they already know what it is that he's about. So Jesus calls out to them. He walks back into their lives, probably in the very early morning, near the end of their busy work night on the lake. A couple of them are still fishing close to the shore. A couple of them are mending their nets in their boat. And he says, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, in my paraphrase, what you guys do with fish, I want to teach you how to do with men and women. Now, that is, I think, an interesting metaphor. And the natural question, I think, that ought to arise in our minds then is, how did Jesus plan to and make his disciples into fishers of men? So, in order to answer that question, let's make some observations, if we could, about the text this morning. Number one, First observation, as you can see, when Jesus re-entered into the lives of men and he called them to serious commitment, he first set before them the value of the priority of fishing for men. You see that right there in verse 17. Here, Dr. William Lane, uh, in his remarks and his excellent commentary on the Gospel of Mark, I think are pretty spot on target, I think. He says... And I quote, Jesus' word to Simon and Andrew was remembered for its vividness and urgency. Come after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. He writes, to interpret this phrase as only a play on words appropriate to the situation, Jesus calls them as they're fishing, is to fail to appreciate its biblical background. In the Old Testament prophetic tradition, it is God who is the fisher of men. The fishing metaphor, therefore, is striking. He goes on to say, the summons to be fishers of men is a call to the task of gathering men in view of the forthcoming judgment of God. 
in specifically calling these men to be fishers, there is reflection on the unpreparedness of people for the critical moment which has come. In time, the fishers will go where Jesus has not gone, and they themselves will proclaim the message by which men are gathered. Jesus affirms his relationship to those called. He will make them become fishers of men. What they will become depends upon their following him. So, let's wonder uh, about that idea for a moment and sort of personalize it a little bit this morning if we could. Suppose that someone just out of the blue was to ask you this upcoming week, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? And if you were to be asked that question, I suspect that most of us in this sanctuary, or if you're watching online this morning, might respond to that, well, yes, I am a Christian. I've been following Jesus for two years, or for 10 years, or for 25 years, or whatever. Really, that person responds, okay? So what does a follower of Jesus do? I mean, what happens in your life because you are following Jesus? Now here's then the follow-on question. What comes into your mind then as your first response? Well, maybe all kinds of things. Perhaps you would say, well, because I'm a Christian, what I do is I try to follow the Ten Commandments. Or I want to become more holy, or prayerful, or loving, or honest, or I'm hoping to be a better father or mother, or I'm trying to deal with some personal habits that I know in my life are displeasing to God. And of course, all of those things are important, to be sure. And yet, as I read this portion of God's Word that we just looked at, I'm struck by the simplicity and the clarity of what must have been in those fishermen's minds as they got up out of their boats and as they left their nets behind. Because the bottom line was this. If I leave this and if I follow him, apparently the major thing he is going to teach me to do is fish for people. If I follow him, that is what will happen. That is what I will do. So, again, the first value Jesus put before his disciples was the priority of fishing for men and women. Here's the second observation. Fishing involved working with others to prepare, to cast, and draw nets in order to bring those fish to the shoreline. Look again at the text. Verse 16, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, verse 19, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the net, mending their nets. So, back in the day, fishing involved working together with nets. Now, here is what I dug up in one of my uh, better Bible encyclopedias. It tells us that the strenuous life of fishermen required a strong physique, that at least seven of Jesus' disciples were originally fishermen, some of these were partners in fishing and were used to working together. Often on the Sea of Galilee, fishing was done at night. During the day, the fishermen on shore or waiting in the water could throw casting nets. Larger nets were let down by several men from boats. The fish were either emptied into the boat or the nets were dragged to shore. The Bible 
never refers to fishing as recreation. Here's a bit more. In the New Testament, three different Greek words are translated net. The most common word, hadiktion, was the type of net that was used by Jesus' disciples. It was let down or cast into the water and then drawn in and emptied into a boat or dragged to shore. The care of nets included washing, drying, and mending. So, I think several things stand out here. One is that fishing generally was not a solo activity. It's certainly much more so in our world today. For much of us, uh, for most of us, I think it's kind of a recreational activity. It's uh, an opportunity to get into the great out of doors and sort of de-stress and decompress and just relax and maybe just enjoy some alone time in the wilderness out on the water. That's certainly a big activity, recreational activity here in the state of Colorado. Perhaps you've heard the story of the man who lived in a small town near the mountains, and he would go out fishing alone every weekend. And at the end of the day, he would always come back with a big bushel basket full of fish that he had caught, so much that he would have to take most of them down to the local market in order to sell them there. And people always wondered where it was that he fished and how it was that he could catch so much. One day, the chief of police in town, actually the only policeman in the town, approached him and he said, hey, I love to fish, I really do, but I've never done nearly as well as you. Do you think that you might be willing to take me with you tomorrow to watch and to learn? To which the man said, you know, fishing is my me time. It's something that I really just enjoy doing alone, the peace, the quiet, the solitude, all of that. I'm really not interested in any conversation or any company as I go. The policeman said, I understand completely. I prefer solitude as well. But I'll tell you what, if you take me with you tomorrow, I'll drive, and I promise not to say a word the whole time we're together. This will just be about fishing. That's it. Reluctantly, the man agreed, and so the next morning very early, they took off together. They drove about an hour up into the high country, turned off the main road onto a dirt road, and drove another half hour back to a large, isolated, high country mountain lake. And they were all alone. They were the only ones there. The man went over to the brush near the shoreline, and he dragged out his canoe that he had stashed there. And they both climbed into it, and they paddled way out into the middle of the lake in silence. Once they were way out there, the man opened his tackle box and he pulled out a stick of dynamite and he lit it and quickly threw it out as far as he could into the middle of the lake. A few seconds later, there was, of course, a huge explosion, giant plume of water, and soon enough, scores of dead and stunned fish rose to the surface. The man then began to paddle over and scoop them up with his net and into the canoe. The chief of police sat there in stunned silence. He watched all of this wide-eyed, but he couldn't restrain himself any longer, and so he said, I cannot believe what I just witnessed. That is so illegal, and you are so busted, mister. The fisherman looked at him, and then he reached into his tackle box once again, took out another stick of dynamite, he lit it, and handed it to the chief of police. And he said, are you going to talk, or are you going to fish? Now, I think my point was, we might like to do it alone. 
But in the first century, fishing was generally not a solo activity. Now, sure, you could grab one of the smaller round hand nets, you know, with, with weights sewn to the edges and cast it into the water on your own from the shallow water and draw in maybe a fish or two here and there. But most of the time, fishing was a group effort. People working together, working in sync with one another. It took a team of people to go and cast nets and bring in a sufficient catch. A second idea is that the care and condition of those nets was really critical when fishing. If fish were to be caught, the nets had to be clean, the mesh had to be untorn and effective. So it took time to look at, to repair, and properly adjust the equipment which was going to be used for the fishing activity. And thirdly, successful fishing required going, obviously, where the schools of fish were. Fish don't usually come to you. You've got to go where they are. The fishermen had to figure out where the catch was and go there to do the work together if there was going to be any success in the endeavor. Follow me, Jesus calls in the Gospel of Mark. There's some fishing that we need to do together. We need to cast out some nets where the lost people are, nets that are effective, nets that are readied for use, and we need to go where the fish are. So, the first value that Jesus plants in the minds of these guys is the priority of fishing for men. The second was fishing involves a team effort in preparing and casting and drawing in nets. And here's a third observation. A major component in Jesus' plan for spiritual development for his guys was to engage his disciples in actively fishing for and drawing lost people to God. A couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our elders here at Discovery, uh, Jeremy George, came to our staff meeting and he shared with us a very interesting fishing story. Not a fish tale, but a true story from his childhood. I can't tell it nearly as well as he does because he lived it, but he shared with us how when he was a young boy, he was very close with his grandfather, even closer than he was with his own dad, with whom he had a difficult relationship. And he shared how it was his grandfather who really taught him how to fish. And one day, Again, Jeremy can tell this much better than I. He and his grandfather and his dad, all three, went out on a boat on a lake fishing together. Uh, that picture is not them, actually, but you get the idea. In fact, I think that might be Dick Van Dyke there on the back of the boat. But in any case, in the course of that day, Jeremy shared how he was able to catch fish, fish after fish after fish, while his dad was getting pretty much stymied and not having much success at all. And so, in fact, was getting pretty frustrated. So there they were, all three of them in the same boat, on the same day, on the same lake, using basically the same bait. But one of them, Jeremy, was reeling them in like crazy while his dad was striking out. And so Jeremy's question to us as a staff was, what made the difference, do you think? Was Jeremy... A fish whisperer? Was one end of the boat or one side of the boat better than the other? 
Did his dad forget to put a hook on his line? What made the difference that day? And Jeremy shared with us that it was actually a couple of things. Number one, first of all, it had to do with the presence and the encouragement of the teacher. Jeremy loved his grandfather. His grandfather loved him. They had a relationship of encouragement and mutual uh, respect and instruction. His granddad had taught him how to fish. And secondly, Jeremy said it had to do with the want-to of the student. Jeremy wanted to fish. He wanted to do well. He wanted to impress his teacher. He was motivated. And thirdly, Jeremy said it had to do with being united against a common enemy, namely his dad in this case. There was a purposefulness to this. And I think that that's really a great illustration of observation number three. Jesus' plan for spiritual development was to teach and engage his disciples in actively fishing for and drawing lost people. Disciple-making, in a word. He was right there with them, and so they were motivated by Jesus' presence and his example and his purpose. Now, how do we know that? Well, immediately following the Lord's call to these men that we read there in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, Mark records for us some things happening in verses 21 to 39, which follow on. We will not take the time this morning to read all of that text, as interesting as it is, but if I could, I'll just give you the quick, speedy Cliff Notes version. First of all, in verses 21 to 22, Jesus enters the synagogue, that is the house of prayer in the city of Capernaum, and he begins to teach. Secondly, in verses 24 to 26, he casts an unclean spirit out of a man whose life was just shot through with evil. Thirdly, in verse 31, Jesus cures the apostle Peter's mother-in-law who was bedridden with a high fever. Fourthly, in verses 32 to 34, we see then a, an entire city really gathers to be ministered to until late in the evening. Fifthly, according to verse 35, the next day, before daybreak, uh, Jesus is up praying alone from everyone else as his disciples are actually looking all over the place for him. When they finally find him in verse 38, he insists, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby. He said, I need to give truth to people, for that is why I came. Let's go. Let's go fish. Dan Spader uh, makes some interesting remarks about this section of, of Scripture in his book, Growing a Healthy Church. He writes this, Allow Mark to give you a feel for the outreach during this phase, that is, chapter 1, verse 14, to chapter 2, verse 12. Soon after Jesus chose the first five team members, he traveled to Capernaum and got down to business. He began preaching to the crowds in the synagogue. He drove a demon from a man. In Peter's home, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Mark says the whole town gathered at the door. Their response was phenomenal. Spader observes this. At this point, Jesus teaches his disciples an important lesson. It is not enough to have great response from a few. People are lost and in need of the Savior in other places as well. Refusing to be influenced by the clamor of the crowd, Jesus left Capernaum and took his followers throughout the region of the Galilee. First and foremost, Jesus was working to reach the masses, passionately burdened for the lost. 
His second purpose was to model the process and involve his ministry team in outreach. He wanted his disciples to share his passion. He knew the result in their lives would be both deep joy as well as lifelong conviction and commitment to great commission living. And then Spader brings us home. He writes, do you notice any difference at this point from the usual methodology in our own churches? Frequently, we aim the majority of our efforts as Christians. Then we turn around and plead with people to share the gospel with their non-Christian acquaintances. But the average believer needs help in reaching out to others. Christ knew that. By taking along the men being trained for ministry, he was giving them an example to follow. Here's the point, folks. If we want to follow Jesus more closely, and I hope that we do, um, if we want to, to grow in maturity in Jesus Christ and in the likeness of him, which certainly ought to be our goal, well, according to the Gospel of Mark, once we have been called by Jesus and we have entered into a relationship with him, then we need to recognize how much lost people matter to God and that his priority call to us who are his followers and who would more seriously want to follow him is a call to learn to give time and effort and prayer and heart and soul to learn to fish. When the great preacher, British preacher, Charles Spurgeon responded to these very verses in the Gospel of Mark, in his journal he wrote these words, Lord, as one who wants to be a winner of souls, cause me to imitate your spirit and method that I may not labor in vain. Lord, cause me to be your unhesitating and faithful follower as long as I live. Teach me to count my days and teach me to make my days count. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from your scripture, for the example that you have given to us, for the priority of the call that you have placed on the lives of each one of us who desire to follow you and follow you more closely. Lord, help us to have your heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.